Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in campaigning and community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe. Dunn Street develops community organising and engagement strategies to win campaigns both big and small and we train engagement staff, volunteers and organisers in leadership and power building. And we also help leaders craft their own public narrative that tells a story that unites people and moves them to act together. To find out how you can create change in your community, then hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Would you like to make a difference in a client's life? Morris Blackburn is looking for a lawyer from graduate to three years post-admissions experience to join their nationally recognised class actions team in Sydney, New South Wales. Their class actions team is the largest and most experienced in Australia and they're responsible for some of the largest settlements in Australian history. If you are a driven, sorry, if you are driven to make a difference and are passionate about litigation and the law, then Morris Blackburn would love to hear from you. Simply go to morrisblackburn.com.au. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive those critical donations, events that will energise the community both online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to www.swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaign issues of the day and the folks leading them from home and abroad. And on today's episode, uh, we are going to mark a milestone in the history of the Victorian Labor government and in terms of the premiers that we've had um, in our illustrious history. And to help me mark that occasion, I'm going to be joined by former Victorian State Secretary and former uh, National Assistant Secretary and former Senator and former member for Batman and uh, your friend and mine, David Feeney, to uh, talk about the, uh, the premiership of Daniel Andrews. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the show, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify when you're done listening to today's episode and leave us a review on Apple Podcast and Podchaser. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Wednesday afternoon on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and uh, joining me on this uh, historic episode, I don't know why it's historic, but certainly we are celebrating something that's historic, so I'll just call it historic, uh, is your good friend and my friend, former party official, former senator, former member for Batman, David Finney, welcome back to Socially Democratic. Pleasure to be back. This Saturday marks uh, the uh, historic achievement for the Daniel Andrews Labor government. Uh, it's an incredibly significant milestone and let's not talk about all the Jeff Kennett contrived milestones and Tory vanity projects like building statues out the front of Treasury Place. This is a real milestone uh, in which uh, 
On Saturday, Daniel Andrews and his government will surpass John Cain and his government as the longest-serving Labor Premier of Victoria, taking over the previous record of 3,047 days in office. And um, certainly here in Victoria, we have, in m- more recent years, we've been blessed with some great governments uh, since, I guess, federal intervention in 1970 with the Cain, Brax and Andrews governments. And so, I, David, I wanted to get you on the show today because... I think that you, uh, your own lived experience lends itself to having a bit of a conversation about uh, giving some context about the Kane government and the Brax government, but then diving into the significance and the achievements thus far of the Daniel Andrews Labor government. Obviously, you worked in head office with Daniel Andrews when you were the party secretary and he was the assistant secretary. Uh, you were the secretary during the Brax side of 2002 and you also worked with Braxy in the government. Um, and even though probably at the time of the Kane government, you were most likely a young man attending a uh, private Catholic girls' school in Adelaide, you certainly are a student of history. <laughs> and uh, you can give some perspective on the Kane era. Um, so I just thought what we could do today was uh, reflect on this moment and celebrate this moment of achievement by the, the Andrews Labor government and by the Premier and really take the, a moment to rub it in the faces of both the Liberal Party and the media uh, in terms of how um, respective shitter jobs they're doing and why we keep on winning relentlessly. So with that in mind, <laughs> that in mind. Um, well, let- well, okay. Th- th- thank you for that kind introduction, which I think can essentially be brought down to the proposition that I'm very, very old and I was there at the time. Um, <laughs> I, w- I was uh, a, a, a very young staffer for the very final moments of what was then the Kerner government. Um, uh, and yes, as you say, saw much of the rest. Um, and I mean, you glossed over the significance of the date insofar as Jeff Kennedy is concerned, um, because of course this is a date that triggers, or well, there's a date that triggers the awarding of a statue, right? Um, and as everybody knows, Jeff Kennett came up with this idea because he really wanted a statue. Um, and then of course, able to achieve the date himself and never got his statue. But much to his chagrin, was forced to erect a statue of John Kane, who he deeply loathed. Um, and now in due course, we'll see a statue of Daniel Andrews. Now, of course, the proper thing that everyone in the Labor Party says, and Daniel, of course, in particular says, is, you know, this is a Jeff Kennett vanity project. I don't care about it. I'm not into statues. I'm into accomplishments. And everyone disses the statue. And I understand that's the key lines document, but Stephen, you need to understand that your guest today is into the statue. (laughs) I'm into the statue. I want a fucking statue. Um, I was deeply invested in the Brax government and Steve Brax did not care about the statue either. And to my great and everlasting annoyance, um, resigned and left politics like seconds before he was going to get his statue. And so we never got the Brax statue. But now, at last, uh, we have a Labor Premier who's going to get his statue. And while um, Dan Dan himself doesn't give a fig about it, I do. And I might be the only Labor Party person who turns up to watch the thing go up, but I will watch the thing go up. And my therapist says it will uh, go a long way to me getting over the fact that Braxy never got his. 160 days short, Steve Brax was from getting his own statue. Can you imagine me on my knees in his office crying, 
Four more months. That's all I have. It's not even half a. It's not even half a year. It's not even half a year. It's like winning a championship and then not getting the banner to fly from the rafters of your stadium. You know. He just did not care about the statue. No. And how cool would it be to have three Labor statues? I know. I know. You should join my therapist for the session. <laughs> so I know we're not meant to care about the statues, but I do. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why we're doing this episode because the statue dates are well and truly past. That happened uh, like a month or two ago. This date coming up, actually, I think is actually more significant from a Labor Party yeah. perspective because it is surpassing it is. John Cain, which has always been seen as the gold standard of Labor premiers and governments here in this state. Not to take anything away from the Brax government, and we are going to unpack some of those things. And uh, let's 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 talk about the 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 John Cain government. Um, mm-hmm which uh, was elected in 1982 in a significant moment for the party because obviously it had been a terrible period for Labor in Victoria. We'd had 27 years in the political wilderness following the split. Uh, set us the scene, David, uh, in those, uh, those, those, those moments leading up to the election of, of the Kane government in 1982 when I was seven years old. Yes, yes, and I was 12 in my defence. Um, well, as you say, it was... Um, the first time Labor had succeeded in winning a state election in Victoria since um, the government of John Cain Senior fell apart in 1955 as part of the split. And Victoria, of course, was the epicentre of the Labor Party split. And it was the state where the Democratic Labor Party was the most powerful. And the Democratic Labor Party, of course, worked um, essentially as a powerful preference feeder for the Liberal Party, um, capturing 10 or more percent of the vote and preferencing Conservatives and essentially locking the Labor Party out of office made Victoria um, the worst state for Labor and made Victoria the jewel in the crown, of course, for Conservatives. Um, But that was all starting to break down. Um, And by 1982, uh, Labor found itself able to win an election. Now, it wasn't just luck. John Cain and a group of senior ministers um, had engaged in um, uh, significant reform of the parliamentary party. Um, the Labor Party itself had gone through a wave of reform uh, in 1970 with the intervention, and really between 1971 and the with the new um, constitution, the Victorian LP, which introduced proportional representation for the first time, um, there had been 10 years really of um, continuous improvement, I guess, of the Victorian ALP rules. The party was going through a period of, um, I guess, something of a renaissance. There were a lot of new people coming into it. There was um, academics, artists. There was still the afterflow of the Whitlam enthusiasm. Um, And there were some um, figures uh, like, you know, Gareth Evans, um, David White, um, a a whole pantheon of characters who would later become significant as legislators, but at this time worked hard on the policy process. So when John Cain presented to the Victorian people in 1982, he was leading a very different-looking Labor Party. It was younger, it was uh, trendier, I guess. It was in touch with um, uh, the burgeoning uh, progressive middle class in a way that it hadn't been previously. Um, And its election in 1982 really broke the spell that Labor couldn't win in Victoria. Um, and, of course, the government then went on. I mean, it, we, we, we kind of remember the darkest days of the Kane government. Often governments are defined by their finish, unfortunately. Um, but between 1982 and really 1989, 
um, the Kane government was um, very, very successful politically and in terms of its policy platform. It was seen to be socially progressive but economically responsible. Um, and that's kind of, given how the government finished, that economically responsible tag might be hard to imagine, but it was a very successful manager of the state's budget and economy. And it you know, did things like bringing our COA to the state, um, introducing um, the work cover scheme for the first time, you know, expanding the state's stock of, um, of, of, of parkland um, and national parks, investing in education, building the National Tennis Centre, um, uh, and establishing, you know, standards of open and honest governance with the first moves towards things like FOI. So it, it was a it was a period of success. It was a period of policy innovation, um, and of course that was rewarded with electoral victories. And for the first, it might, it might have been the first Labor government in, in generations when it was elected in 1982. But of course it went on to win the 1985 and then 1988 elections and. By the end of that, John Cain had won three elections in a row, was the longest-serving um, Labor leader, um, and had around him a team of ministers, um, which were uh, from both the upper house and the lower house, from both the left and the right, and not aligned, uh, the independence group, which John Cain himself was a member of. And um, through this, this kind of socially progressive, economically prudent, and John Cain himself being um, something of a, um, you know, proudly wearing the Wowser tag, you know, anti-gaming. Um, so it was, it, was a, it was a government that sort of struck the right mood, the right balance, uh, and was economically successful. Now, of course, the wheels fell off, and a lot of those brand attributes disappeared um, from about 1989 onwards, but during its glory days, um, that was uh, the rebuilt brand of Victorian Labor. And of course, you've got to remember that Bob Hawke was elected Prime Minister in 1983, um, a, a government that was you know, heavy with Victorian ministers, federal government with lots of prominent Victorians in it. Um, and so, you know, suddenly Victorian Labor was buzzing um, in a way that it hadn't um, really since the 50s. And you, I feel like you don't have the, the success of the Brax government or the Andrews government without the foundations being laid by that, that Kane government over that, over that time frame, right? I mean, you sort of alluded to a bit of it in terms of uh, the, the, the work being done both in the parliamentary wing but also in the, in the, the party itself in the modernising Victorian Labor from the dark old days of the pre-1970 uh, intervention, right? Yeah, and I, I mean, these are innovations that just appear so completely ho-hum by today's standards. But, you know, you've got to remember that in 1982, um, proportional representation was still um, regarded as something as, of an innovation. The Victorian branch of the LP was the first um, uh, branch of the Labor Party to get proportional representation. Everywhere else it was first past the post. And you essentially had machines, whether they were of a left or right character, that if they could get 51% of the vote, they would take every position inside the party organisation and dominate pre-selections accordingly. Um, now, this started to um, break down in the 1980s as PR was progressively rolled out across the country. It reached Queensland in 1980 
for instance, with an intervention there. Hmm. Um, so uh, suddenly you had the Labor Party becoming, um, you know, with, with proportional representation, you had it being more representative of its affiliated unions and members. You had members acquiring more influence and a greater role in the organisation. You had things like policy committees, where previously you just had the Victorian Central Executive um, issue diktats. Um, you had the Parliamentary Party really operating in a new relationship with the party organisation. Now, the heavy hand of the Victorian Central Executive was gone, um, and there was a newfound sense of um, authority and independence in the Parliamentary Party. Um, you know, the Parliamentary Leader didn't have to check with head office before he, and it was always a him, announced, um, you know, a policy around educational health or whatever it might be. You know, the, the kind of nonsense that went on in the 60s is just unimaginable to us today. Mm. So, yes, the Labor Party suddenly um, uh, appeared on the, on the stage as a modern um, force, both in terms of its personnel and in terms of its organisation and in terms of its policies. If we fast forward then to the, uh, the, the Brax era and setting the scene um, for leading into that era, um, you know, I think back, so this is 1998, 1999, um, you know, the end of the Kane-Kerner era left a real, I guess, stain in the minds of voters. And it kind of felt like for a moment there that Jeff Kennett was actually, you know, you know he was the dominant politician of that era and that the Kane era seemed like, like, like it was, a, you know, the broader context this might have been some sort of aberration in the history of Victorian state parliaments, right, that the Labor Party had been in for this period of time, but the the, 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 dom, the Liberal dominance was going to be – was returned and returned for good. Um, and going into the 99 election, I don't think anyone really thought Labor had much of a, a, a chance. This, I'm talking this is pre-Steve Brax being elevated to the leader of the parliamentary caucus. Um, what do you think the lessons were learned, though, from the Kane-Kerner era that you kind of touched on a little bit but didn't go into the details – that set Labor up going into the 99 election? Um, yes, well, I mean, the the end of Kane and, and, and Turner's stint as Premier were very difficult days for Victorian Labor. Um, all of those hard-won attributes around competent economic manage, management were washed away. Um, the state fell into recession. We had the terrible tram strike, which was kind of a monument to how Victorian Labor just couldn't manage microeconomic reform anymore. And then we had, um, you know, there was the, a botched effort by Victorian Labor to um, reform local government that ended in strike and acrimony. Um, and I remember sitting on the steps of Parliament House, I must have been 20 or 21, and watching 100,000 people march up Burke Street begging the state government to resign. Um, and I think that was in the aftermath of the collapse of the Pyramid um, Building Society down in Geelong, which impoverished huge swathes of that community. So everything was going wrong and it was all terrible. Um, hard to imagine from that moment that we would be back in government in 1999, which is a lesson for all of us about how quickly these things can turn around. Mm. Um, I would say in 1999, Labor... Um, uh, uh, they had learnt the lessons from Kane in terms of both what to do right and what not to do. So the things that Victorian Labor did in 1999, which John Kane and his team had also done, was to refresh the Parliamentary Party and to bring in new people from all groupings that could give the party um, you know, fresh energy, 
fresh ideas and a fresh look. So there was, um, you know, notwithstanding the, some difficult pre-selections, there was quite a significant rejuvenation of the parliamentary party, as there had been in the late 70s and early 80s with um, Labor at that time. Um, again, the formula with uh, that John Cain brought to the Victorian um, political contest was uh, deeply influential for the Brax formula, which is essentially, you know, a social um, conservative, a prudent economic manager, um, someone who is in touch with um, uh, ordinary Victorians and but wasn't going to terrify people um, with uh, uh, a radical project that might uh, enable our political enemies to point back to the Kane Kerner finish. Um, and so Steve sort of personally embodied those things. But I think a couple of a couple of things that Steve Brack set out to do that um, differed from the Kane formula was firstly to build a much stronger relationship with the Victorian business community. The relationship between the Kane Labor and the Victorian business community was always one of desperate antagonism. Um, John Kane and his inner circle were always completely suspicious. Of the, of the business community in a very sort of traditional Labor Party sense. Um, it, 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 they have echoes of 1960s Labor in their rhetoric and their sort of deep intrinsic suspicion. And while that might warm the cockles of our heart, it's not sensible politics, particularly um, sensible politics for a government that does need to bring um, all sides of um, uh, the state together to accomplish things. Um, wherever it can, and and Kane was really, I think, I, I think that was a very limiting factor for Victorian Labor in the eighties, and we wanted done with it. So Labor started building um, a business constituency, um, and you know, and and I think has been very successful at doing that. Now that's um, uh, that hasn't. I mean, critics would, of course, say, oh, my God, that's Labor selling out its values and yada, yada, yada. It, it's not. It's a very pragmatic approach about um, building allies inside the private sector, which have the dual effect of weakening the Liberal Party um, and strengthening the reservoirs of support for Labor. I also used to describe it as something about improving our radar screen. It just meant that the Labor Party had a much better understanding of what's going on across the whole state mm. in all spheres of endeavour rather than having this giant blind spot. In any event, um, that was uh, something that Brax set out to do and he did it, uh, and he did it you know, successfully with you know, Rumbia's treasurer and um, a whole range of other ministers. It was a, it was a project to basically um, lessen that historical um, animosity between Victorian Labor and the business community. And, of course... That was pursued as an ingredient in, because of Steve's more overarching objective, which was to consolidate Labor as the natural party of government in Victoria. Um, and, and, and achieving that meant building and consolidating new constituencies. And as we've talked about before, that was the returning Labor to regional Victoria. All of those country seats which we hadn't held since the great split of the 1950s um, we were won in 1999 and then we set about um, making sure that we would hold them and consolidate there and, and that was essentially accomplished. So forever, the political um, 
geography of Victoria was changed. The geography in the Kane period was Labor could win and should win everything north and west of the Yarra. Um, and then there would be an earnest fight for the southeastern suburbs, the Sandbelt, as we called it, the seats by the sea, Carrum, Frankston, Morty Alec, those sorts of seats. Um, and then some gains would need to be made in the clay belt in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne to clinch victory. And so you see throughout the whole period of the Kane government, this life and death battle for seats like Mombolk and Bayswater, uh, because these were the seats that literally held the margin between victory and defeat. And regional Victoria was all the Liberal Party stronghold, Liberal and National Party stronghold. And remembering Mitcham used to be the bellwether seat for government. Right, exactly. Yeah, and we fought like banshees over it. Um, winning it in 1997 in a by-election was, you know, a, a, a huge step forward for us. And by today's step... <laughs> we were losing our shit over there. Ah, it's amazing! <laughs> Yeah. I know, right. Uh, mind you, we just won Aston a, a weekend ago, so oh, the world has changed. Um, yeah, so so Brax changed the political geography, and of course that was um, his consolidation of really the Brumby project. Um, built Labor's um, business constituency, uh, and, and I think over, over a period of a dozen years or so, Labor has really driven the Liberal Party out of large swathes of the Victorian business community. That's the truth of it. Um, I, I think Victorian Labor, uh, Victorian Liberal Party has gone from dominating Collins Street to being rare on it. Mm. Um, and that's been deliberate, a deliberate program. Um, and uh, yeah, so, and, and then, but, but taking those cane strengths about being prudent economic manager um, and, um, and, and taking that forward as Brax did. It's funny you mentioned before about the um, the regional seats that we did pick up in 1999 in Ballarat, Bendigo, uh, the Geelong area, uh, particularly focusing on those three uh, regional urban centres. Labor has not lost any of those seats except for the South Barwon seat since 1999. We've held, held on to those seats. It's been a critical part of our foundation to you know, either win government or hold on to government. People, you know, and I, I constantly look at that pendulum and think if the Liberals were ever to, and we, you know, we, we did a podcast on this last year, it had nausea and trying to work out what is the pathway for the Liberals to get back into government. And we're always saying, well, you know, if they, if they win all four seats on the sand belt, then they're in the hunt, but they still need to win seats in the regions. And that's something that has been a red wall for us. And it's, you know, to your point, it started in 1999 and it's significant. That's, a, that's something we need to owe a lot of credit to John Brumby and Steve Brax. Yeah, I mean, Jeff Kennett had seats in Geelong, Ballarat and Bendigo um, and they were um, you know, Liberal Party strongholds. I mean, Geelong was a marginal seat. I mean, again, unimaginable today. Um, so, yes, that was that was a significant um, rebranding of the Labor Party across regional Victoria. And, of course, both Brumby and Brax embraced it because one was from Ballarat, one was from Bendigo. Both had held Brax had run for a by-election in Ballarat. Uh, Brumby had been the federal member for Bendigo. Um, they lived and breathed that stuff. So then fast forward to 2010 and Labor loses what I would argue is a surprise election defeat under the premiership of John Brumby. Steve obviously, as we've noted before, retired 160 days, 160 <laughs> days short of a friggin' statue. 
selfishly. Uh, selfishly. Uh, we'll point out the media at the time was saying, because he gave, he said the reason was uh, family reasons and the media were very cynical of that. And it turns out you were wrong and Steve was right. He did retire for family reasons and he still is owed an apology. Um, so we lose government in 2010 to uh, Ted Bellew, a moderate from uh, Central Casting for the Liberal Party. Yeah. Uh, a guy called Daniel Andrews is elected the opposition leader and partly because the right couldn't actually coalesce around one particular leader for some reason. And I think a lot of them in the room probably thought, oh, we're, we're going to, we're not, this is going to be a two term, three term liberal government. So why take yeah, it's not, Beware being too clever. I know. I, I do love it. The I remember m- when John Brumby became opposition leader um, uh, in, gosh, when was it? It must have been uh, 1994, 1993, something like that. Um, uh, and I remember saying to him, gee whiz, the timing's not good. And he said, you've got to grasp these things when the moment comes. And it's absolutely right. You watch these people being clever and tactical about when they will uh, make their march for greatness and the moment never comes back. I oh, know. I kind of feel like naming some of those. Uh, <laughs> but we won't. But I won't. I oh, know. I won't. But where are you now? Anyway. Um, and so 2010, the mood in the caucus is that Labor is going to be in opposition for, for a couple of cycles. And by 2013, Labor is now out of government federally, out of government in New South Wales, out of government in Western Australia, out of government in Tasmania, Queensland, and in, and in Victoria. And you'd think the Labor brand... Um, was probably one of its lowest points nationally. And here in Victoria, you had a moderate Liberal Premier, which I would like to call the perfect scenario for the Age newspaper, uh, leading the state. And the mood... And I had started at head office in 2012, and the mood really in the in the party and in the caucus was... wasn't great. Uh, they, you know, folks started... No, to think but, we were going but, to be out of government for a while. No, I want to get to this point here. But there was one person that didn't think that, and that was Daniel Andrews. Well, and, and he was obviously right, and because he 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 was picking up a better inheritance than any Labor opposition leader had um, in Victoria, perhaps ever. Um, certainly, much better than the inheritance uh, Braxton Brumby um, got when they picked up the cudgel, and better than what John Cain got when he picked up the cudgel, because he was inheriting a party that well, had lost an election, but hadn't lost that election in scandal. It had lost the election because it was seen to be old and long in the tooth and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it hadn't lost an election because it was perceived to have botched economic management or gone down in some kind of, um, you know, rum-core-type scandal. It was a government that had lost an election narrowly and honourably left the Treasury benches. Um, and that was something of a new experience for Victorian Labor, um, that we, we, were, we, we still had a critical mass of seats, we still had our brand attributes intact um, and we were, were going to be fighting a, a campaign down the road with a party organisation that remained in good health um, in terms of its personnel and its finances. Uh, and, uh, of course, with a business constituency as well as the traditional constituencies around the trade union movement and civil society. So the fundamentals were still good. Now, that's not to say there weren't enormous policy challenges and personnel challenges. Of course, there were. I guess I'm just saying that systemically speaking, Victorian Labor was bundled off into opposition in 2010 in as good a shape as you could ever hope. Um, and uh, and so it was poised to recover ground quickly. 
Um, and I'd say, as events showed, the Liberal Party um, you know, struggled in government and, and, and was managing, I think, two great stresses which have since killed it. The first is its internal policy contradictions and the second is just a desperate lack of talent. Just competent people, regardless of ideology, just people who you can trust to do anything. Um, and and the, and, the, and they're getting thinner and thinner on the ground for the Liberal Party. We'll uh, spend a bit of time dining out on the woes of the Liberal Party in a moment. But um, so then, for the for the viewers out there, twenty fourteen comes around. Daniel Andrews, uh, we won the Melbourne by election against the Greens uh, in like twenty twelve. In a in a by election that I think everyone thought the Greens were going to pick up the seat. Uh, Jen Cannis, the Labor candidate, was elected. Uh, and I think that's the first glimmer of what I would call hope for Labor heading into this 2014 campaign. And to your point, to the things... Because that, by then we'd lost the federal seat of Melbourne. Correct. It's worth pointing out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that gave our base, certainly our base hope. And then coming into that campaign, to your point before about certainly a head office, you know, I was working head office there. Um, we had a campaign that was centred on policy that was addressing the challenges that Victorians were facing and it was underpinned by a new style of campaigning, you know, data-driven, values-based type of campaigning, embracing, you know, community organising, backed up by strong digital campaign. And they, you know, really, it was a close election. I think we kind of look back on it and think, oh, yeah, Labor was going to win it. But actually, it was a close win. We only won by like a handful of votes in a handful of seats um, to, to get back into government. And then the rest is history. What I want to reflect on now is, unless David, you got you know, thoughts on that particular election there before we go into some of the analysis of the Andrews. I just was going to make the point, you know, compare that to uh, John Brumby, who uh, led the Labor Party in um, 2000 and in, in our 2006. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, uh, 1996, mm. rather, state yeah. election campaign. In the 1996 state election campaign, the Labor Party was utterly bereft of money. I think we made one television commercial and we probably showed it 10 times. Um, the budget was, um, I mean, in, the, in those days, the Labor Party was not simply bereft politically, it was bereft financially and just could not afford to be a campaigning organisation. Now, by 2014, um, you had a Labor Party in opposition that could still afford to be, in terms of its personnel and its thinking and its financial wherewithal, at the front end of innovation, uh, campaign innovation. And that's terrific. If I can go back to that 1996 period, when I joined the Labor Party, I joined in like 92 or 93. And so there clearly was still a bit of money in the branch because I remember my very first Labor Party membership card. It was on a thick plastic credit card type material. By 1996, my ALP membership card was a piece of paper that was black and white. And the GSM, the GSM was the thinnest, like it was like Japanese crepe paper. That's how thin it was. I remember the core flutes were in black and white. That ad probably you're talking about, I think that was in black and white. Well, that was the period when the Labor Party secretary sacked the fundraising organiser because the fundraising organiser was, was organising less money than their own salary. <laughs> and so, in fact, their dismissal represented a saving to the Labor Party. <laughs> Um, that's when the Labor Party was um, really just beginning. Um, well, it's from that time um, with John Lenders and Ronald Lindell and other characters um, that the Labor Party first began 
uh, to try its hand at fundraising in a methodical way after, um, you know, being proud of the fact that it couldn't raise a brass rose prior to that. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks uh, that can change minds. Emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline. And text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. So let's talk about the, the, the leadership of Daniel Andrews and the Andrews government. And, and we're reflecting on it, knowing full well that it hasn't finished the work that it's got to do. It's still got plenty of work to do. But we're marking this occasion, this date on uh, Saturday to spend some time to reflect. And I want to sort of break down the government and also the leadership of Daniel into a couple of subcategories and kind of get your thoughts, thoughts and reflections on it. Starting with Daniel Andrews, the, what I call the policy nerd. The policy Ooh. ideas that continue to come out of the government over since 20 well, since he took over as the leader in 2010, all the way through to we're in our ninth year and there's no sense of ideas uh, uh, slowing down. There's still a, an appetite for new ideas coming out and we saw that at the most recent, you know, the last year's state election. And we think about policies like the level crossing removal um, policy that got helped get them into government, which the media were laughing him about, laughing at him about. Melbourne Metro, uh, suburban rail loop, uh, investment in you know schools and hospitals right across uh, the state. This sort of central focus on job creation and how Daniel is always just focusing on jobs, about job creation, and then the secondary spin-offs around you know better schools for your kids or better hospitals for you know your families or support for nurses or um, or getting to work on time quicker, but it's centrally it's about jobs. And I think that that has been something of a, um, you know, when I talk to sort of social democratic parties around the globe and I ask them, what's your policy setting? What are you going to the electorate with? Very rarely are they saying, oh, we want to create a shitload of jobs for people. And I just think that's interesting what's happened here in Victoria under the Andrews government. I want to get your reflects on, on, on Daniel, the policy nerd and the drivers that's come, not just Daniel, but it's come out of that government in terms of, you know, trying to actually make a real impact on people's lives and they're therefore getting rewarded at the election for it. Well, I guess I would go back to the Brumby government and the, and its policy offering. And, of course, as you said, Daniel was deeply involved in um, the construction and selling of that. And 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 what the, the that was a policy offering which essentially was you know better health under labour, better education under labour, um, more police under labour. So turning the law and order debate into a contest of resources rather than a battle around crude sentencing provisions that was important, and and those things were all measurable. And so we used to be able to say in our campaigns, you know, we've hired we've got you know, X number of new teachers and X number of new schools and X number of new hospitals and X number of new nurses and this is how many more nurses are coming from your suburb and, and, and so we could drill it down and they were, they were tangible policy offerings. And I think uh, that I'm sure that um, imprinted itself upon Daniel so that he was able to evolve that formula. Um, and whereas we kind of very stubbornly stuck to schools, hospitals and police numbers, um, he was able to evolve it into infrastructure uh, and, and, and into other policy areas. The second thing I would say is that Daniel, I think, uh, and this is, I'm sure will be written up as one of the strengths of his period as Premier, 
has always had, a, I think, a good understanding of kind of the above-the-line policy suite and the below-the-line policy suite. So the above-the-line policy suite are the things he will shout to the heavens about, but there's a lot of other things going on that attract less publicity but also represent accomplishments. Um, and they they don't attract, you know, the, 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 the amount of coverage that some of these other ones do, but they remain important and they are still, you know, the foci of key advisors and key ministers and so forth. So, you know, there are other things in the sands of time that we shouldn't forget too, like um, yeah, the Mental Health Royal Commission and the implementation of its findings, um, the Victorian Labor's um, stewardship of the treaty process and how that's been managed in the state in a way that I think has got has taught Labor great lessons around the country and we might end up reflecting on how few lessons that process has taught federal Labor. Mm. Um, so in, in his diversity and gender um, uh, agenda, um, and so the, in, 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 across a whole range of important fields, Daniel has accomplished things which just haven't been um, front of mind when the when the big bus goes by and the you know the placards are, are, are painted, but which remain important contributions too. Um, but he's got a keen political eye. He knows which ones he should be promoting because they will mean something to everybody and help him get re-elected. But he's got a I guess a, a, a progressive Labor vision about other things that need to happen as well, not by stealth, but I guess by understanding that they have less appeal, they appeal to fewer different people um, and they're not going to be front and centre of a re-election effort. Someone crudely put it to me uh, a couple of years ago that it's um, a mix of meat for the suburbs and sprinkles for the inner city I don't know if it's as crude as that, but it's certainly to your point. Yeah, you're right. There are a number of things that Labor has done over the over the last nine years that don't get a lot of mainstream publicity, but are just as effective and are just as important to certain communities across the state, not just in urban Melbourne, but in in the regions as well. Yeah, and you can see when Daniel talks to those issues in Parliament, as he ha- ha- does from time to time, because some idiot Liberal has attended a neo-Nazi rally, for instance. Um, and that will prompt Daniel to say something in Parliament about issues that aren't normally his bread and butter, but they are nonetheless issues of enormous and deep passion for him. Mm. There was a um, in the um, we were making a video for the twenty twenty oh. sorry the twenty eighteen uh, Can Rally so for all of our volunteers, um, which was a video to be shown on the rally was on the Sunday night before the final week of the election. And the video kind of compiled together all the things that Labor had done over the course of the previous four years and basically making this argument that this is all at stake on election day and we need to get out there in the final six days and knock on as many doors and make as many calls. It's up to you now. There's nothing else to do. Just talk to voters. And there was a, just a sort of a, a, a vignette or a, a collage of different things that Labor had done um, played to um, some wonderful, wonderfully inspiring music. Uh, but there were some moments in there, apart from, you know, clearly building a lot of shit, right? There was also some stuff in there like the, you know, the apology to um, the LGBT community that he did in Parliament. And it was on the sort of the um, – it might have been on the Friday night or the Saturday night before the rally and the video just finally got finished. Um, and I was at CHQ and I'd been sort of looking over the video person's shoulders for like three weeks watching this person make this video because I said this video is going to be very important at this rally to, you know, it's going to open the rally, it's going to really fire people up. And we watched this, we watched this video and when it got to that moment 
when Daniel Andrews in Parliament says, you know, if you're on a tram right now um, and you're a member of the LGBT community, do me a favour, hold their hand. Because you're talking about how you would have got arrested in the 1970s for doing such a thing. And it was just mm. moving. You know, it was, there was, there was probably five of us cuddled around this laptop watching this video and I, there wasn't a dry eye in that, you know, campaign office at 10.30 at night. But it just, for me, at that, that moment there, it spoke to me about, shit, there's a lot of stuff that actually has happened that even I've not completely picked up on in my busy world of being a party official, you know. Stuff that really means a lot to people but isn't on the front page of the, the, the Herald Sun or the, or, or, or the Age. And I, I think that speaks to his leadership and the, I guess the values of the government as well. Well, it'll only ever be on the front page of the Herald Sun if they can manage some kind of, um, you know, scare campaign and outbreak of homophobia. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not really going to be the vehicle for progressive reform. <laughs> uh, yes, I think your point's exactly right. And I think that's... Um, Daniel's been really successful at running, though, that, that sort of a two-track system, uh, a two-track policy advance um, in some ways that's been true of every Labor government, but I think it's been particularly true of this one. A lot of people outside of the state actually think that's the stuff that they see, that's the only thing that they see, and they think that Daniel's some sort of, you know, socialist and this is a socialist utopian stuff, but, I mean, they completely are missing the point, but, well, you know, I want to move on to... Only if they watch Sky at night. Yeah, exactly, and I think that's what they are watching. Okay, let's talk about Daniel the campaigner. And as you know, he's a former Assistant Secretary. He worked with you when you were in head office. Uh, He gets campaigning. And, you know, he's made, he made my job a hell of a lot, a lot easier when I was a party <laughs> official, right? Because he wanted to try uh, new things. He was prepared to go into the living rooms of our supporters, you know, meet volunteers in their communities, share his story, listen to their concerns, listen to their stories, and really motivate them about getting involved in a political process and using their voice to create change. He actually did that. Now, there's been other political leaders within the Labor Party in my work where I've tried to get them to do that, small, intimate rooms, and they don't want to do that because they want the big rallies or the big sort of, you know, town halls. Daniel, underst- I think Daniel really understands campaigning at a macro and a micro level. And the other thing I think is also worth acknowledging is that, um, you know, it wasn't, uh, it's not as though he didn't have his own critics with inside the, the Labor Party. I remember early, early in the, probably when he was still in opposition, people were giving him shit about being too woke particularly on like his Facebook page. The, you know, the way that in the early days he was communicating on his Facebook page, it was like, oh, this is off message. This isn't, we shouldn't be doing this. This isn't going to win selections. Now those same critics are actually praising how on message he is to a particular type of voter. And I'm talking about young voters in particular or, or women voters in particular and that how much of a genius he is. But way back in the early days, people were shitting on, on him for that. And I think that there's a courage to the way that Daniel leads and campaigns. He's always willing to try... Uh, new things and also I think what proves him right is that all the other Labor leaders around the country all basically rip slabs of words from Daniel's Facebook page and punch it up on their own. I want to get your thoughts on – because you work with Daniel as a campaigner when you're at head office. I want to get your thoughts on that. Um, well, the first point I'd make is that, um, you know, Daniel's career in the Labor Party is one, you know, where he has uh, – he hasn't had the whole universe gifted to him. You know, he's done some hard yards um, and he's worked down in the boiler room. Um, so he's got some dirt under his fingernails. I mean, he, I remember the ballot to um, select uh, the socialist left-aligned organiser in ALP head office, as it then was, uh, which took place, I think, shortly after I'd started a party office, was a giant, um, you know, intrafactional slugfest. And being from the right, I wasn't 
privy to it, but I was eating popcorn in the stands watching it. Um, and so when Daniel arrived at our party office, he had just won um, an enormous internal ballot. Um, I, I tell that story only to make the point that, you know, he has experienced politics, you know, at the branch level, at the faction level, at the machine level, um, and, of course, as a legislator and a candidate at, and, and, and now, of course, as Premier. And throughout that time, I mean, one of the marked things about that time is, you know, when we were doing campaigns um, you know, 25 years ago, we were doing direct mail and ads on three stations uh, with a suite of radio, I suppose. Like, you think about the incredible transition Daniel has watched and participated in over the course of his political career as we've moved from that, you know, what is now appears to be such a desperately simple system um, to the to the system of today where there are just so many more moving parts. Mm. And that's been a transition which, of course, has disrupted and changed our society in a gazillion different ways. But he's he's watched all of that happen over the course of his political career. And he hasn't been mystified or bamboozled by it. As you say, he's embraced it um, and got out ahead of it. And when he's found people who share that ambition of getting out ahead of it, he, he, he brings them on board and Add, and, and adds them to the team. So um, I, I think that's been a very... The fact that he's... A, maybe calling him an early adopter is overstating it, but the fact that Labor and he have made that transition from that Jurassic system 25 years ago to now being a party, um, which is certainly a long way ahead of the Liberal Party and might be ahead of everybody in terms of how it does um, uh, grassroots campaigning, um and the you know the campaign action network and digital all of those things are now strengths and none of those things existed at all when he was a party official there's a real intellectual curiosity uh from daniel in terms of campaigning i think that that's and uh i think that's an important strength and we talk about growth mindset in organizing you know you can't have a closed mindset there's the worst campaigner is the person that's still trying to run the same campaign that they won and use last time for the next campaign. You've got to, you know, you've got to work with what's in front of you, not what was behind you. And I think Daniel's always been very open to, uh, uh, you know, embracing what's in front and how do we organise in such a way that can overcome the things that we can't control. You know, let's talk about Daniel. Yeah, I mean, twenty-five years ago, the Victorian Liberal Party was one of the toughest political campaign machines in the country. Yeah, and today you wouldn't trust it running a campaign in the kindergarten. No. Um, so when you know when Daniel started, our adversary was you know a tier one adversary. Yeah, let's talk about Daniel, the statesman or the leader. And I I can't do this without talking about COVID because I thought that COVID really was a moment where his leadership qualities shone through. In which I think that he made the decision to do the right thing for the people of Victoria as opposed to the the, the political thing. Um, I think he has a strong sense of what people want. Uh, and I'm sure the stress, the pressure that he was facing from both the media, the opposition, maybe people within his own caucus and obviously the community, all throughout that whole period he never blinked. And he made a lot of decisions that people weren't happy with. But in the end, what we've seen, and I mentioned this in the podcast last week, you know, all through COVID we were being told by everyone in New South Wales and in the conservative media that the uh, the Liberal government in New South Wales had the gold standard approach to COVID and what was going on in Victoria was a, a disaster. Last time I checked, 
there isn't a Liberal government in New South Wales, but there still is one in Labor, in Victoria. Well, of course, that gold standard remark ended up being an albatross around uh, the Liberal parties. All the people who were a part of that comment have now left the political stage, federally and state, haven't they? Um, uh, and even Josh Frydenberg, who you know betrayed his state in describing New South Wales as the gold standard, it was naked partisanship and they all suffered the consequences. I think um, Daniel's handling of the COVID thing is certainly something that he is always going to be remembered for and will be the centrepiece of his legacy, I'm sure. But I think it does prove that old Keating adage um, that good policy is also good politics. Um, and if bad policy looks like it's good politics, it won't be in the long run. Uh, if, you, if I mean, given the nature of the Victorian situation, which was fundamentally worse than New South Wales um, in terms of the scale of um, the, the outbreak here, if, if Daniel had done it differently, things would have been worse. Mm. And if things had been worse, then the government and its standing would have been worse. Um, there was a narrow path out and Labor took it. And uh, it, it obviously it, looked, it was courage, but it was also the right thing to do. And any other course would have ended, any, any sort of apparently more popular or populist course would have just ended in disaster. Um, and, 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 and I think that was proven by the fact that it was a course that was um, supported by the great majority of the Victorian people. The second aspect of it, of course, is the fact that Daniel controlled to a great degree the conversation through those press conferences. As every, every Victorian who doesn't give a fig about politics was tuning in to listen to the, to the latest COVID report um, delivered live by the Premier, and everybody was interested, not because they gave a fig about Daniel or the government or anything else political, but because they wanted to know, you know, what the rules were. And they wanted to stay abreast of the rules that affected their daily lives and the daily lives of their family. And so they were all watching it. And a lot of them saw, a, a, for the first time, a Premier who was not being presented to them by journalists, but who they were watching live on television. And they saw someone who kept his poise and kept his temper and answered questions rationally, even while being assailed by a band of rude and entitled um, uh, jackals who were colloquially and rather entertainingly labelled journalists. And so um, it was a transformation. It was like suddenly you've got a million people, a million people watching this performance every day, and at the end of it, they concluded, gee, I had no idea journalists were so rude and so abrasive because we only ever see the answers to their questions. We never watch them asking them. Mm. And watching them ask the question is a revelation because they're animals. And the Premier, who handles this, you know, unremitting rudeness with grace, and they weren't expecting to see that either. I was going to do the Daniel and the media part to the end, but you've gone there, so let's do it. The only thing I could say, and we've, you and I have talked about this a lot on the show, but the, the only way I can best sum this up is that Daniel understands Victorians better than the media do. And I think that, I, think, I don't know if they know that, but I think they do know that, and I think that shits them to tears. Well, thank goodness, because we had no choice, really, did we? I mean, the Herald Sun has now turned into such a, partisan campaign entity 
I mean, you cast your mind back to, you know, the Joan Kerner in polka dot dresses. Like the Herald Sun has always been an enemy of Victorian Labor. Um, but it has just steadily ramped up the intensity and the volume so that it now it just reads like, uh, I mean, there's, it, we used to try with the Herald Sun in the Brax period and we'd talk to the journalists and we'd try and get a run and, we'd, and it was a contest and it was an unequal contest, but we were in it. Well, today, why would modern Labor spend a moment's time mm. on the Herald Sun? It's like, um, uh, you know, the Liberal Party Daily. You just you just wouldn't bother talking to them. Um, it's become such a a, a rabid and hysterical um, uh, document. So it's it's a changed environment, and it and it meant Labor had to think of doing something else. Now, mercifully, as you said earlier. We did something else by talking directly to the people of Victoria, whether that be through press conferences or social media or otherwise. And we can now reliably uh, speculate, I think, that the Victorian people just discount the Herald Sun um, whenever it says anything political mm. because people of Victoria haven't listened to the Herald Sun in any meaningful way for a quarter of a century. Um, and the more hysterical the Herald Sun gets, the more the people of Victoria seem to vote Labor. Um, and as we saw in Aston, um, where the Herald Sun was deeply invested, um, people voted Labor again. Mm. So, um, yes, the, uh, Victorian Labor and Daniel Andrews have been able to reach the people of Victoria, notwithstanding the fact that the journalists um, would stab us all to death with their pencil. The, uh, the last area I certainly want, in terms of a reflection that I want to share with you and I want to get your thoughts on that, is that... I think Daniel and the government have been very good at uh, either framing or reframing. And there are plenty of moments in which you, we can find examples of it, but there's actually been a great moment which has just been, which is recently with what's going on inside the Liberal Party. I think Daniel has shaped the politics of the state of Victoria. He's, de he's defined what is right um, and what is wrong and he sets a bar and the liberals, the liberals continue to fail to meet those expectations which have been set by the Premier and endorsed by the people of Victoria. And I think the, the media continue to miss this and I think they misreport this. And then that pisses their readers off and then they wonder why they're getting a backlash via social media platforms. What do you, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, I think that there is a, there's, a moral, there's a morality to Daniel's leadership. <laughs> well... Um before you get all Jesus Christ superstar on me, <laughs> I was thinking the other day about um, the various uh, factional and party challenges that these governments have encountered and how that has been a characteristic of them. But, you know, towards the end of the Kane government um, and throughout the Kerner government, there was you know great factional conflict between left and right and certainly within the right. And you know, the, the the left's power inside the Labor Party sort of rapidly grew during that period, and that led to changes which were resisted. And so there was a lot of conflict. At, at, and the state parliamentary Labor Party and the state government were kind of oblivious to it. They, they didn't control that conflict. They barely understood it. Um, it was happening around them. It was it was intruding on the cabinet in a way that they didn't fully understand. And they were, and it, and it was destabilising the Labor government, and, and and that was kind of the story of the late eighties, early nineties. Fast forward then to Steve Brax. In his period, there was also a period of 
you know, great factional upheaval. Um, <laughs> and his approach was really just to ignore it. Um, he had uh, a cabinet that was unified behind him and a parliamentary Labor Party that was happy and successful and unified behind him. And he just basically said, you know, these cannibals and barbarians can charge up and down the outer corridors of the party organisation and fight over who gets the 12th spot on the admin committee. We don't give a bugger. We're just going to sail on. And he did. Um, and so that conflict inside the party did not derail um, the cabinet and did not um, derail the premier and he remained um, aloof and in charge. And then Daniel has also been similarly tested. Um, and how did he handle it? Well, there was he, he, these are dynamics he well understands, so he wasn't going to be intimidated by them. Um, and, and I guess with the national executive and with a federal leader who he could trust, he was able to manage these processes um, you know, pretty uh, more di decisively than any of his predecessors, because with the plenary powers of the national executive, he turned his writ into law um, and was able to dominate, uh, to control that intra-party crisis and dominate its conclusion. So I think that's an interesting thought about how each of them has, each of these governments has managed, you know, in, never, in a tempestuous branch like the Victorian branch of the Labor Party, there are always, the, the absence of a crisis is not possible. But how you manage a party crisis is is, is interesting. Um, and that's how Daniel has done it. I, I had a, a an unkind person describe Daniel uh, as the Labor Party's Jeff Kennett, um, insofar as he's dominated the stage and dominated and defined his party. But I think, and, and there are some interesting thoughts about that, I think. Um, but I think one of the things too about Daniel is he's he's been given an enormous amount of loyalty by the, the party as a whole um, and by and overall by the parliamentary party. He, um, I mean, obviously there are people inside cabinet and parliamentary party and elsewhere who, from time to time, are unhappy and are critics of his. Um, but they have, generally speaking, um, uh, and for the most those that haven't been identified and destroyed, um, and we know who they are, you know, the mm. Somerics of this world and so forth. Um, but the Labor Party overall has given Daniel, I think, a great deal of loyalty, and he's been lucky to be in charge of a bunch of people who, um, even when they've had to grind their teeth, um, have followed him, and, and they have. Can we talk about the, the, uh, the, um, the Tories for a moment? Uh, I heard someone say, and it was someone from the Federal Caucus say to me not that long ago that oh, liberal, no one of Daniels in Labor is so successful in Victoria, the Liberal Party is shit. And I kind of pushed back on that a little bit and I said, okay, when Labor was losing consistently to John Howard in the 1990s, people weren't running around and saying how shit federal Labor were. We were all gnashing our teeth and saying how John Howard... I oh, know we were. To be fair, we were. Well, I'll come back. I want to push back on that for a moment. <laughs> we were gnashing our teeth and saying certainly that Howard was exploiting the fault lines inside the Labor Party and we were tearing ourselves apart and knew also the fault lines within the broader electorate. 
And that was his genius about exploiting those weaknesses. And I think that this government, not just Daniel, but this government is also very good at exploiting the fault lines within the Liberal Party in which they find themselves constantly being wedged. Do you remember when we used to think about wedge politics, it was, it was just the domain of Conservatives and only us could yeah. be wedged? Daniel, this government does this to the Tories relentlessly, week after week. And it's been so much fun to watch over the last eight, nine years. And it happens... Well, you take the trans issue, for instance. I mean, this, I think that's the classic one. I mean, this is a, you know, somewhere in the basement of the Liberal Party, they design this trans wedge and they bring it up to the roof of their building and fire it, expecting it to land on the Labor Party. And, of course, it goes straight back up and straight back down again. And then the Liberals are fighting over it. Yeah. I mean, the Labor Party didn't even get a chance to get wedged or outraged about the Liberal Party approach to trans because the Liberal Party instantly started fighting amongst themselves on it. And all we had to do was buy popcorn and watch them fight. Well, can, can I go? Can, can I continue with this uh, military metaphor that you've come up with? Daniel catches the missile and then turns it around and then just throws it back at the Liberal Party because he actually does that. He says, "Yeah, no, I'm 100 percent in support of trans community," and and goes and doubles down on it and then says, "What are you going to do about that Liberal Party?" And then they go, "Oh shit, I haven't thought about that." And then they start tearing themselves apart. Yes, but um, uh, the 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 evil angel in me would make the point um, that the Liberal Party is just incompetent. Um, There are sort of diabolical fields here which conservatives can plough, and we've seen that in the United States, Um, you know, where in the state of Virginia, a Republican won a campaign against critical race theory, and it wasn't even taught in the state of Virginia. so truth is not an obstacle to the Conservatives running very sophisticated culture war campaigns in the United States. And and I think derivations, Australianised derivations of that could be run in Australia, but it would require some wit. Whereas what we've got here, and we saw this in the federal election with um, you know, Morrison's hand-picked candidate in Sydney, and then in recent days with the upper house liberal who appeared at the neo-nazi rally what we've got here are morons political morons i mean forget the fact that they're to the right of attila the hun forget their politics for a second they are just simply idiots idiots by any standard it wouldn't matter what they were doing they're just plain stupid and what these morons do is they wander into these debates um, completely intellectually unequipped for the fight that is to come. Um, And Daniel is able to run over them and uh, the progressive media run over them. And even Sky at Night is looking at these morons and saying, you make it very hard for us to be us. Um, Because, you know, we would like to run an argument against trans and bathrooms, but wearing a balaclava and doing a Hail Hitler is probably not the branding we'd have gone for. So we are blessed, whether it be federal, state, Victoria, New South Wales, by the fact that the Conservatives who seek to um, prosecute these sorts of cultural arguments are really stupid um, to the point that it offends any professional in the business. And But to that point, as James Carville always said, 
it's hard for your opponent to talk shit about you when you've got your fist in their mouth. And I do think that Daniel does do that as well. You know, like he, he – some Labor leaders of the past probably wouldn't have had the courage. If they saw that they were getting wedged, then they would have retreated for the hills and tried to go hiding for, you know, for a couple of weeks. Whereas Daniel doesn't do that. I think Eric Locke said it on the podcast maybe last year when you and I him did the one about what the fuck's going on in the Labor Party right now in Victoria. He says, Daniel runs to the crisis, whereas most politicians run away from it. Matt Guy was so good at that, literally would go try to sneak out the back door of Parliament and run across Spring Street to get into the opposition rooms to avoid the cameras whenever there was a crisis. Like he literally ran from the crisis, whereas Daniel next day fronts up, okay, let's go. I'm the only one that's going to be able to fix this. And I just think that is interesting about the way he does lead. And it also means he becomes the towering figure in Victorian politics, no matter what the issue. Um, I mean, there's a, there's another couple of interesting points here. Jeff Kennett taught me um, how quickly politicians can run out their welcome by just being overexposed. I mean, Jeff Kennett's you know six years or seven years as Premier felt like 20 years. Mm, it did. Because he was in your face every single day. And you were just thinking, oh, my God. So Daniel has been much cleverer at rationing himself. Um, But the other thing that is interesting is that um, as the media window has shrunk on state politics and it can no longer sustain, you know, half a dozen or a dozen figures as it once did, can now only sustain really one or two or three. That's how bad it's become. You know, the, the state round is tiny. There's no trades all round anymore. Um, there's only one paper and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like mm. there's just so few people covering it or producing content about it um, that what Daniel does is make sure that in that shrunken window, he's the only face left. And I really think the last state election brought this to the fore for me where, you know, people didn't know who the Liberal Party leader was, notwithstanding the fact that he'd been the leader four years previously and had a million dollars spent on his ads. Um, they're just it's at that shrunken window of public imagination about state politics is completely dominated by Daniel. The last thing I actually want to actually, sorry, two more thoughts. One thought, I know we've been trashed on the uh, on uh, journos, but there are, I will say, there are a couple of journos that I think do understand uh, Daniel and the government. Um, Paul Strangio actually has written, one of the few people that has written um, some interesting columns on Daniel's genius you may not agree uh with me on that uh raf epstein's another one that i actually think is um got a reasonably good understanding of uh the premier so i will just name those uh two um well one's an academic and one's a radio commentator (laughs) neither of them are stupid enough to call themselves journalists um so the the makeup of what we've just seen in aston over the weekend and this this continues the glory years of the Labor Party at the moment, which I'm just loving. I'm loving so much. But I did tweet during the week or maybe on Saturday night after maybe too too many martinis. uh, You know, Victorian Labor, we were always said that, like in the Brack slide of 2020, sorry, uh, 2002, we won a lot of seats out in the eastern suburbs. But the, the, the view was they were flukes and we'll lose them again. And, you know, broadly speaking, we did. In 2018, we won a whole bunch of seats in the eastern suburbs again. And the view was you know, they were flukes, we'll, we'll lose them in, into the future. And I started to change my mind only based on my, going out of the United States and observing the way that the, uh, the Republicans 
behave when they win turf off of their off their Democrat opponents, right? They really try and dig in and hold onto that onto that turf as opposed to giving it up just because that's what happens. And so obviously I've come to the view that no, no, we can actually hold those seats. Um, then 2020, 2022 May we see swings to Labor in the eastern suburbs for the um, Albanese election, and then in tw- and then later on that year we not only see Labor hold all those seats in the eastern suburbs for the in-state election, but swings to Labor in a bunch of seats and pick up more, which is insane, right? And now we're winning Aston. There, I guess what I'm saying is, is that Daniel and the government, you know, have to uh, – there has to be some credit given to them in terms of the way that they've communicated to the broader electorate with certain, oh, yeah. with certain oh, policies yeah. in which people sort of go, you know, I'm not Labor or Liberal. Like, I don't, I, don't want, I don't want a red car or a blue car. I just want a car that's going to kind of get me around town and I'll give this one a go if they keep doing the work. And I think that we can lock in that vote out in those eastern suburbs for a couple of generations if we continue to do the right things. But that requires us to resource them. That's a whole other topic. But I just want to get your thoughts on how the political landscape, you talked about how the Brumby-Bracks era redefined regional Victoria for Labor. Here's another opportunity for us to do it in the eastern suburbs. What's your what's your thoughts on that? <laughs> We're going to leave the Liberal Party with nothing. Ideally, um, yes. <laughs> I was party secretary in 2001 when the last by-election was held in Aston, um, and we lost that. I was very confident we weren't going to win this by-election, not simply because of my 2001 experience, but my reasoning was Labor had a good swing in Aston at the federal election. Um, I think it was 7%, um, 8%, by any stretch, a good swing. And I thought the conditions that drove that no longer exist. Uh, Morrison's no longer the Prime Minister, um, and his kind of baleful impact on Australian public life and promoting the the issues around, you know, anti-gender issues and all of that sort of potpourri of issues that made him so toxic, have suddenly left the field. And so I thought all the things that drove that swing at the last federal election are gone and Labor will struggle to get, you know, another 6%. Uh, And and so I was very confident we would win and, of course, we won. Uh, And I think that's just amazing when you think that the Liberal Party has fewer supporters in Aston today than it did on the day of the federal election when that buffoon Scott Morrison was Prime Minister. Mm. That's that that's bad for the Liberal Party. That means it's 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 actually deteriorating and that the things that were driving its catastrophe at the last federal election have not abated under Dutton. Uh, but if anything they've intensified. That's that's really the particularly diabolical message, I think, for the Liberal Party that um, now, Dutton obviously plays particularly badly in Victoria, but so too did Morrison. Um, and you would have hoped that, um, uh, if you were a conservative, you would you would have hoped that Dutton would have at least brought some of those issues into a status quo uh, and arrested the decline, but apparently not. Mm. So I think this goes to your point. What's going on out there? Um, and are we seeing shifts in how... Um, I mean, what we've got in places like Scoresby, you know, these are, there's big Chinese, Australians of Chinese heritage out there, and those communities, I think, are part of this puzzle. I think 14% of Aston is of Chinese heritage. That's a big number. 
Um, but they're also very white, aren't they? They're, they're low education, high income white. Um, lots of tradies. Um, uh, what, what's going on? We used to think these communities, you know, as the Australia, its large portions of the working class became self-employed, sort of paying their own tax and left the union movement and the Labor Party behind. What's going on here? Are they... Are, are, are they? And I thought the Liberal Party was going to hold them through culture wars and talking to them about toilets, um, but it isn't. And so I think we need to have a good look, to your point, Stephen, about um, how it is the Labor Party can consolidate uh, in these places, because uh, particularly as the struggle for us gets more and more acute in the inner city, um, you know, the, the children of the Liberal Party... the. the Liberal Party voters' kids have moved into the inner city and become Greens. Liberal Party voters themselves are dying of old age. And what is left behind in these suburbs, in the inner and outer east? Um, because they're changing really dramatically. And, you know, and it's not as if we, you know, we one thing we've certainly discussed in today's episode is that how quickly things can change and we saw that for labor like um you know between uh the the, the between the Kane era and into the the Kennet and then the Brax era how quickly things can change and so that there's been some yeah. there's been some low moments for labor even in this journey and that that will happen again well that can happen again but there are ways to avert that um but and I don't think it's as just as simple as sort of winning democratic democratic sorry demographic politics I still think you need to. It's not just a case of oh, all young women are going to vote Labor now. Um, if the Liberal Party are to move back to the centre, to their natural heartland, then it's a contest of ideas again, and the de- demographics don't mean shit because it will come down to granular one by one conversations in these homes that will be seeing votes flip. But yes, at the moment it appears that they've vacated the centre, so therefore there are big swathes of types of voters that are identifying with the Labor message. But we can we can stuff it up by come out with policies that no longer appeal to them or the Liberal Party can start to move back into the Senate and come up with policies that are more attracted to them and all of a sudden things can change. I guess well, what look, I want... Look at the recent efforts of the Liberal Party's opposition leader. So he came out and tried to have the Liberal MP expelled for her attendance and participation in the neo-Nazi rally. That was him strategically understanding exactly where the Liberal Party needed to go. Mm. Um, and in my view... Um, and facing down this, uh, you know, sky at night philosophy, which is that the Liberal Party keeps losing because it's not right wing enough, which is just like we used to put up with in the 80s. You know, the Labor Party is losing because it's not left wing enough. Mm. The Labor Party has never lost an election because it's not left wing enough. And conversely, the Liberal Party has never lost one because it's not right wing enough. But nonetheless, the Liberal Party are at that point in their history where this is the fight they're having. And Pesciuto understood that and put on the boots and went in. And what happened? He didn't win. Mm. He didn't lose, but he was actually humiliated by a factional compromise. Um, And that, I think, tells us where the Liberal Party is at. Daniel has got an adversary at the moment that's deeply wounded and divided um, and doesn't have enough intellectual firepower in its organisational or parliamentary wings to reform it like it needs. And he's hoping we don't take our foot off their necks for the next three years. 
David Fanny, final reflections before we wrap up. I do appreciate your time on today's episode to uh, sort of go a bit down his. M- well, as I said line. at the start, it's good therapy for me. I've got statuitis. <laughs> I wanted a Braxy statue. My therapist and I have talked about it a lot. Now I'm getting a statue. Um, I'm into the statues. I know we're not meant to be into statues, we're into accomplishments. I, I've heard all the key lines. I'm not buying it. I want the bloody statue. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, before I say cheerio to you, uh, David, uh, uh, can I wish uh, all of our listeners that are uh, members of any of the Abrahamic uh, religions big weekend coming up for those uh, uh, who celebrate um, uh, Ramadan or Passover or Easter. We wish you a safe, holy and happy long weekend. David Feeney, to you, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Great to see you again. Lovely to go down Pleasure. and uh, just, you know, gloat about um, the glories of uh, Victorian Labor anyway. Um, I think This is them now, I think. Yeah, absolutely. We spend too much time wringing our hands about when things aren't well. I think it's, it doesn't hurt every now and then just to sit back and go, you know, we're doing a good job, all right. This is good. I'm enjoying this. Yeah. All right. Have a great Easter. You too. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Socially Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events, that will energize the community online and offline and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.